0: Hello, and welcome to The Consumer VC. I am your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and innovation in both consumer technology and consumer products. If you're enjoying this content, you could subscribe to my newsletter, theconsumervc.substack.com to get each new episode and more consumer news delivered straight to your inbox. Our guest today is Ernesto Schmidt, co-founder and arch crafter of The Craftery, a $375 million global investment fund that invests exclusively in CPG brands. Some of their investments include Tomboy X, Hip Peas, and Edgard and Cooper. Previously, Ernesto was a serial technology entrepreneur who had successful exits to Twitter, Snap, and Intel. You'll learn why Ernesto believes digitally native brands are heading into retail too early, what the expectations are at the Series A and B, and as well as his approach to analyzing founders and companies globally. This was a fantastic conversation, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Without further ado, here's Ernesto. Ernesto, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you?
1: I am feeling energetic and zippy. Thanks for having me.
0: I'm so thrilled. So, let's start at the beginning. What was your initial attraction to technology?
1: So, um, I'm from a background of creatives. So, my grandmother was an actress, my grandfather was a painter. You know, I grew up in a creative family. And the basis of creativity is belief in the transformative power of ideas and the idea that, you know, if you let free reign to imagination, you get to change the world. And outside of, being transformative on canvas or you know, with a chisel and a block of marble, the best way to be transformative is using technology. So in a way, technology is the medium to be creative with the world.
0: I love that. And it's also kind of like adapting to times too, how technology is that new medium or new platform for creativity. So thinking about creativity, what attracted you then to become an entrepreneur?
1: So you know, I never thought that I was going to be an entrepreneur. And in fairness, when I you know grew up and went to university, I studied engineering, and then I got an MBA from INSEAD. And in those days, what you did is that you were either a trusted business advisor, A.K.A. strategy consultant, or you worked in banking. And the only people who created their own ventures were you know something to be suspicious of. There were no role models for successful great entrepreneurs, certainly, you know, in the 1990s, late 90s. And then along came the internet and suddenly, you know, the transformative power of ideas took over. And it wasn't a case of me saying, I'm going to give up a conventional corporate career or consulting career, but it was much more the 27-year-old in me, which at the time was considered to be very young to create your first venture. Nowadays, if you haven't created your first venture by the time you're 17, you're old. But at the time, creating a venture at 27 felt... Like, you know, the call of nature saying, here's how ideas become real with a technology that is, you know, truly epoch defining and transformational. So it wasn't optional. It was a must. I had to. So how
0: did, I believe your first entrepreneurial endeavor, People Sound, how did that come together? And did you plan on heading into the music world? Did you have some ties into that world?
1: Yeah, so that was, yeah, just for those who don't know, PeopleSound was one of the world's first online music platforms. You could think of it as being the, you know, spiritual grandfather of, you know, iTunes and Spotify and, and all of those things. At the time when there were no digital music platforms, uh, we grew it to being you know Europe's largest millions of users. But you know, what what attracted me to it was you know, the music industry I was intrigued by because it was, you know, creative and an industry. So I thought, you know, I love music and lots of creative folks and there's a business there too. And the mistake that we made, because fundamental disruption was a new thing there and there certainly weren't any role models for it. But the mistake that we made was to believe that the way to transform an industry is to facilitate change for the incumbents. So, People Sound was the platform that was designed to help the music industry understand consumers, identify artists, use big data, which is something that didn't exist then, to spot trends, all of these things, which, of course, nowadays you take for granted. The internet is all of those things, but in those days, nobody knew. And, of course, the golden rule of transformation is that incumbents don't want to be the agents of change. They want to be the supporters and the custodians of the status quo. The way that you bring about change is by sticking two fingers to the incumbents and saying, damn the torpedoes and creating a challenger of your own. That playbook is well-established now, but in those days, that was a new thing. And trust me, I haven't created another venture that was trying to help incumbents since.
0: I remember those days for uh, certainly in the late 90s, early 2000s, when you also had all the lawsuits coming out with illegal downloading. And like, I was very into music. I mean, still very into music, but I was a musician growing up. And um, yeah, I certainly remember even a lot of the artists that, of course, didn't want to change the ways either of their livelihood and how they got paid and made money that were very lucrative.
1: And what's really, you know, inherent in this, this is interesting also for the case that we're going to talk about investing in consumer goods, because the same applies now, 20 years later, which is... When you think about what the business of music was 20 years ago, this notion of the record label with access to recording studios and you know balance sheets where they would pay artists advances and then they'd speak to the pluggers at radio and get it played on air and all that kind of stuff. And they would make stars and create stars. Well, that business is not actually the music business. And nowadays record labels are utterly irrelevant, other than being the custodians of historical copyrights that they acquired for you know a steal and are now printing money off because the royalty rates that they pay artists are negligible. The music business today is. Spotify. And the music business is not the production and distribution of music because that's commoditized. The music business is discovery for consumers. Help consumers discover content that's relevant for them. So think of the music industry no longer as universal music or Warner Music or any of those because they're elephants and they're irrelevant and the value of them is irrelevant. The music industry now, other than the fact that they own copyright, the you know, the music industry now is about discovery, and that is entirely in the hands of tech, and that's why you know Spotify is worth more than all the record majors put together multiple times over.
0: It seems like back then, in the LP, CD era, it was, you know, being a facilitator of relationships, right? Once you produce an an album, you know the DJ, and so you get the song played.
1: Well, that's right. It was a Koli oligopoly where you got to choose the stars. You chose for consumers what they were going to be able to hear. And disruption means that that doesn't apply at all anymore. And what it's now is about finding the right Empowering consumers to find content that's right for them, so it's the discovery game that is the industry, as opposed to the production game, which is what it was then.
0: What made you decide you want to actually flip to the other side of the table and become an investor and raise a fund?
1: So, two things. The first is, as a result of you know creating, setting up, running, succeeding or failing with a dozen ventures of my own over many years you build up a bunch of experience. And I recognized that I found myself in the position where younger entrepreneurs were coming to me for guidance and for counsel. And it just very naturally evolved from there, which was to realize that, in contrast to many conventional investors who have a purely financial background and have never created a company of their own, don't have empathy with the entrepreneurial process, don't understand really how ventures grow and scale and the challenges that the founder has behind that, I could speak with empathy eye to eye and be on the same level as the founders, and that that uniquely should enable me to be a more successful investor and one that entrepreneurs would trust. So I flipped over to the investment side because it felt I had something to give back and that I had a unique relationship that I could build with the next generation of entrepreneurs. And I moved away from tech to focus on consumer goods because it felt to me that the next big wave of disruption in the world was not going to be necessarily anymore in the field of tech, where you could argue that we hit peak tech already years ago and that the likes of Google, Facebook and Amazon and the others kind of have tech largely sewn up and it's much harder for two guys and three girls in a garage to create the next Google, that actually the world of consumer goods had been shielded entirely for 20 years from fundamental disruption, but that disruption was happening in consumer goods the same way the disruption happened in media and transportation and all of those things through tech in the previous 20 years. So it felt like the time was right Consumer good disruption. Most successful challenger brands in consumer goods are at their core digital. They understand how to communicate with consumers digitally, they're activated digitally. Many of them, you know, use the whole suite of product development capabilities and others that you'd find in a tech company, but apply them to physical products. I think the reason why a number of conventional tech investors have started moving away from consumer goods brands as their investment focus is that they made a mistake, which is that they applied the same investment model to consumer goods as they would have applied to you know, backing, um, you know, fledgling Airbnb. You know, the model of tech is that you invest a lot, you lose a lot of money for a long time, and then you build up a moat, and then you rake in super profits until the regulator breaks you up 20 years later. In consumer goods, that does not apply. In fact, you have to work really hard to lose money in consumer goods. And we see brands, time and again, who've taken money from conventional tech investors, which typically signals way too high valuations, raising way too much money with an encouragement to lose a stack of money, and they end up with a business that has a shape that is unfundable and unbackable. And this means means that great brands are destroyed by bringing the wrong capital. Instead… We think that consumer goods operate according to the very own logic that is different from tech companies, that requires a different kind of investor, that understands how you build consumer-facing brands through multi-channel, retail, physical, digital, and other, and will help shape the PL. In fact, very often we find that the most successful consumer goods brands are uninvestable because they don't need any money, because they've succeeded in being profitable from day one, because all the reasons why normally a consumer goods brand would require capital, building, manufacturing plants, and so on, you can now outsource as a service. And hence, actually, if you know what you're doing, you can scale a consumer goods brand from zero to hundreds of millions of revenue without ever needing hardly any capital behind it at all. So that requires a very unique skill set there.
0: With all this being said, I mean, how do you think about, then, growth versus profitability in consumer? Because, I mean, as you said, there's a lot of consumer companies become profitable a lot more quickly um, more so than technology companies, whereas you said, like you lose a bundle, a bundle, a bundle of money year after year after year.
1: So, this is one of the key questions that we often face. And if you look at the values that we publish as the craftery, you know, the investment fund that I run, the investment company that I run, is, you know, it says, amongst others, if ever we're forced to choose between big or relevant, we will always choose relevant. So, believe it or not, we often tell our entrepreneurs, you're growing too fast. You're better off focusing on quality of revenue and quality of earnings rather than chasing growth for the sake of growth. And you certainly are growing too fast if you're trying to grow into, quote, unquote, evaluation from a previous round where you know, somebody came in and gave you 10 times revenue as your ingoing valuation. And then you realize, oh, gosh, you know I'm going to have to grow my revenues by such a huge amount in order to get back to market comps that might be, at, I don't know, three times revenue or four times revenue, something like that. So that's a very dangerous thing to grow too fast. At the same time, there is no reason why a cause-driven challenger brand in consumer goods that is offering a better solution for its category, you know, to the benefit of the consumers of that category or the planet of society, which is what these cause-driven challenger brands all are, shouldn't amplify its impact. But it is about finding the right means, the right mechanism, and the right time, and the right rate of growth to succeed. And there is no hard science there. You know, it's a delicate thing to do. And I think a laser focus on Key measures such as how are your retention cohorts evolving? How is your cost of acquisition evolving? How is your lifetime value evolving? Are you having to make compromises in your formulation or in the purity of your ingredients or other in order to meet the growth? And if the answer to any of those is negative, then you're growing too fast. If you're able to grow without affecting your cost of acquisition, your retention, the you know nature of your formulation, the integrity of your supply chain or other, then you can keep your foot on the gas.
0: Well, how do you think then about and measure relevancy? I mean, does relevancy mean you tie into maybe organic growth or trying to become a cult brand or have like a cult following?
1: So the measure of relevancy here is relevancy true to your cause. If your cause, if your reason for being is a consumer goods brand, is that you're trying to raise the standards in your category? For example, reject single-use plastics, or you know, get rid of slavery in the supply chain, or stand for quality ingredients, or any of those things, whatever the causes with which you're attacking the incumbents. As long as you're relevant to that cause and you're not having to make compromises to that relevancy, you will succeed. Look, you know, there is if you, if you look at classic big consumer goods of the type that we all shake our heads at and say, how do we ever end up there? How do we, you know, mayonnaise is made with fresh eggs. How do we ever end up with products that have a room temperature shelf life of six months, which is what, you know, your craft mayonnaise is? Well, it's a process known as non-consumer noticeables. And basically, year after year, brand manager after brand manager, they chop away at the formulation and they replace sugar with inverted corn syrup, and then they add one stabilizer and another stabilizer. And none of those are noticeable to the end consumer because it still seems to taste the same, but A, it's cheaper, and B, it lasts longer. But over the years, it's a bit like the salami. You keep on slicing away the salami, and then you just end up with the butt. And a lot of consumer goods that started out in an honest and decent place. Over 20 or 30 years have ended up being rubbish products, rubbish for the planet, rubbish for you, rubbish for your health, rubbish for society, rubbish in every way because they were forever chasing marginal improvements that were good for the bottom line of the brand, but actually bad for the cause and bad for the consumer. So, as long as you never tinker with the relevancy in a way that says, well, it's not noticeable to the consumer, so I can chop away at that. That is the trade-off that you that we're talking about. You never sacrifice your cause for the sake of growing.
0: I appreciate that explanation and also those examples and really how you think about big CPG and what's been happening over the past, you know, 20, 30, 40 years with slicing and slicing and also getting those margins um, larger and larger and larger.
1: But let's talk about that because it's really interesting. You know, CPG the way we know, and we think about, I don't know, you know, Unilever and Procter and Gamble and you know Nestle and uh, you know, craft hands, those big consumer goods giants that we think of now, they're a relatively recent construct. They came in the second half of the 20th century. And they they were really is when they scaled. They went multinational. And that's when these huge mega brands that we know around the world emerged. And they came out of a world and a time where the main requirement that consumers had was to satisfy a functional need. I've got a stain here, I need that stain to be gone. I've got a pain here, I need that pain to be gone. Right? A functional requirement. And the role of CPG was to meet that functional requirement with ever-increasing efficiency. So you end up in a miraculous place where you can clean your kitchen surface with like, you know, a $1 surface cleaner, and it does the job brilliantly efficiently. But of course, what it doesn't do is deal with the consequences of consumption. I can clean my kitchen counter with this cleaner, but it's you know, toxic for the environment. And it comes in a plastic bottle that's going to you know be around in, in the ocean for the next 100 years or 200 years. So the challenge of brand revolution in CPG is not about taking on Procter & Gamble and Unilever at their game because you're not going to beat them at their game. It's not about delivering greater functional efficiency because they've got all the scientists in the world and all of the labs in the world to keep on eking out efficiency of their product range. It's instead to deal with a totally different problem, an orthogonal problem, which is the problem of what happens as a consequence of your consumption. So the biggest challenger brands that we all know and love in consumer goods don't deal with consumption, but the consequence. So I want to clean my home, but I don't want it to be bad for the planet. I want to get my fill of carbohydrates, fat, and protein, but I don't want it to be animal-based, and I don't want it to be bad for my health. I want to eat chocolate, but I don't want there to be slavery inherent in the supply chain. So they, consumer goods brands, challenger brands in consumer goods that take on the incumbents do so by changing the rules of the game. And that's where the difference lies.
0: Well, and so for challenger brands, how do you think about consumer behavior? Um, Certainly, I know there's a big push for brands that are healthier for the environment. But something that I've been mulling over is that even though there's a big push, do consumers actually want to pay premiums for these challenger brands? Because of course, with all these great things, it also can cost more expensive because as you say, big CPT was trying to make it more efficient, more efficient, more efficient, and cut down costs.
1: So this is an interesting problem, which is, Unquestionably, for seventy to eighty percent of the world's population, the conventional model of CPG will prevail because you know what they care about is just making ends meet and making sure that they've got a clean home and they're feeding their family in a way that's not actually gonna you know cause unhealthiness. So that model is good. absolutely not, and it's totally fair. But there are twenty to thirty percent of consumers, depending by category, who are actively looking for a better way. Because the truth is that all of us live in you know, deeply anxious times. We all feel the pressure on the planet and on society, and it's getting ever more polarized. And we all feel helpless because we want to do something. We want to do our part, but it's bloody hard. And hence 20 to 30 percent of consumers want to go out to find alternatives that in a very small way help make a better difference. And you see, the model of change that you're talking about here is, you know, there's three ways that you can bring about change at scale. One of them is that you're in government yourself and you get to set policy and Very few people get to do that. The second is that you Bill gates and you single-handedly vaccinate Africa and build sanitation in India, which is amazing, but there's like half a dozen folks that can do that in the world. But the third way, which is so exciting because it's so democratic, is that you take hundreds of millions of people who collectively make billions of consumption choices every day, the products that we touch and use every day of the year, and you help shift their consumption to a slightly better place. The whiplash effect of that happening with just 20 to 30% of the category Redefines the standards for the whole category. When you think about it, you know, only two days ago, Unilever, one of the biggest consumer goods groups in the world, announced that they were going to start selling laundry care, detergent, you know, Persil, OMO, all of those in paper. Bottles. They spent years now developing a bottle that was paper, so they could finally get rid of the plastic from their bottles. They're going to start in Brazil, and if that works, they're going to roll it to Europe, and then take it from there. Why have they done that? Not out of the kindness of their heart, not out of any sense of you know um, um, sort of environmental credentials that were true in their boardroom. It's because challenger brands out there have given them a run for their money in offering a better alternative, and that's what the role of challenger brands is, which is to take on the incumbents. You'll find 20 to 30% of consumers are happy to pay what is often the premium in the category for a better alternative, and then eventually the rest of the category catches up. What that also means, though, is that the role of challenger brands, if they're going to succeed and have longevity, is not to have a single issue, but is to call out the continuous, broader BS of the category. If you look at one of the brands in my portfolio, it's called Drops, drops drops.com, and they're fabulous, ecological, plant-based, zero-plastic. Laundry care brands, it's the alternative to Tide and Daz and all of those in the US. If their mandate was only to be plastic-free, then the moment Procter & Gamble launches a plastic-free box, their cause is gone. But instead, their mandate is to call out the BS across the category. Like, why is there coloring in the detergent they use? Because color doesn't clean. That's just BS added for the sake of it. You know, why all of these ingredients are that are unnecessary? So it's as long as you attack the entire nonsense of the category, you forever have a reason to keep on winning. If you're just a single-issue challenger, you can be outmaneuvered by the incumbents.
0: I appreciate that thinking about okay as a challenger brand okay here are values I think in that case with drops as well um, showing transparency in the supply chain or with ingredients and also establishing a real competitive edge there and that showing your formula or your ingredients that how you're doing is actually a lot different to how the big players doing okay got it I guess backing up a little bit how did the craftery come together?
1: one of my dear friends and long term you know investors and collaborators elio Leonicetti and i got together elio's background is very different to mine so he spent 25 30 years in corporate consumer goods giant so he was one of the guys who created Rocket Bank. who was the fourth biggest consumer goods conglomerate in the world and was instrumental in building that business and um, you know, he recognized himself that times were changing and that big CPG was under attack. And, you know, it just felt like the perfect yin and yang combination. So my entrepreneurial tech background and his expertise in brand building and understand a brand strategy and um, how you create large businesses came together in order to provide an entirely fresh and alternative take on investing in, backing, and helping scale challenger brands and consumer goods. And that's why we created the craftery, which is this portmanteau between craft and factory, which is what we are, craft factory.
0: (laughs) That's awesome. It's very cool. How much traction does a company need to have in order to get you interested?
1: I mean, we differentiate between two distinct phases in the growth of ventures. You know, One is the product market fit stage, which is just about proving that there is demand out there for new product and service and You beg, borrow, steal, and you kind of, you know, scramble along to try to make it work. And that's not us. So that's what we call the zero to 10, 15 million revenue run rate stage. We come in at the next stage, which is helping scale ventures from, say, 15 million revenue run rate to... 250 or 300 million. And they're very distinct because in the first of cases, it really is just about proving that there is a demand that you can satisfy it. And the second is about how do you professionalize a business? And that's a very different thing. It's about building capabilities and platforms and professionalizing. And you know, one of the most common mistakes that we see from entrepreneurs is that they'll present business plans that assume that the status quo conditions, market conditions and competitive conditions will prevail. And here's what the truth is. The more successful you are, the more the market will react, either because incumbents will try to copy you, or because a thousand other VCs that didn't get to back you will fund 5,000 other copycats that are trying to do what you've already done, that all spend money like crazy, ruining your cax and ruining the marketplace for you. And what you find is that while you are cozily drifting along, doing incredibly well with your growth without you know, even having to raise a finger in effort today, Come a year or two down the line, you're having to scramble like crazy in order to remain competitive. And the only way that you can do that is by investing ahead of time in capabilities and platforms that are about being agile and driven by insight around your product development, about building the digital platforms for growth, including you know marketplaces and other, and investing in those ahead of the curve. And that's what we do. Do the brands that you invest in, do they
0: have to be digitally native?
1: No, they don't. I mean, we've invested in brands that are first and foremost physical brands, and we've invested in other brands that are only digital. I think it's true to say that it is unlikely that a brand can be a challenger brand in consumer goods if it follows the playbook of you know, Unilever or Procter & Gamble. You know, you're not going to beat Estee Lauder by behaving like Estee Lauder. You need to operate according to a different playbook. And typically, the playbook will involve having a virtual supply chain rather than your own manufacturing, activating the brand digitally. So, even if you're in Sephora or in Walmart, consumers will have heard about you and discovered you and learned about you digitally rather than on television advertising, certainly in the early stages. It's based on storytelling rather than interruptive advertising, where your consumers Tell you stories that are authentic and resonate on your behalf rather than you, you know, hammering away at what your brand efficiency is in the conventional advertising way of, of the world. Um, and it is about being very agile that way. And it's about, you know, scaling. And you know, possibly you start in one channel and then when the right time comes, you go multi-channel or omni-channel, or maybe you delay that. But it's very rare for you to be a conventional brand that would, you know, use conventional agencies and build your own manufacturing and be a credible challenger.
0: I've heard a lot of investors on the show talk about authentic storytelling, and obviously that's super important for any type of brand building. But how do you think, when you're talking with founders and you're interviewing potential companies to invest in, what makes a story authentic?
1: For us, true authenticity comes from a burning desire on behalf of the founders to change something radical in the category. Because they were dissatisfied with the standard in the category. They couldn't find what they needed, what they were looking for. They wanted a better solution for others, for themselves, for the planet, and for society. If that is the true reason why the entrepreneur created their brand, and if that is, as it were, written on, so to speak, the front of the label of the product rather than the back of it, it is the reason why that product exists, then by definition, there will be authentic stories to be told there. And that's, I think, what to look for more than anything.
0: I know you invest in both American brands and as well as European brands. Are there any differences of what you think about in terms of macro trends in the states versus Europe?
1: So, not really. I mean, obviously, the you know the US is a fabulous market and it's a one big contiguous market with very little friction in it. Whereas, say for example, Europe is increasingly got more barriers in it rather than fewer barriers. But the flip side to that is that European ventures have built into them a sense around how to go international from a very early stage, whereas many American brands. For example, neglect going international. You know, certainly I'm yet to come across a U.S. brand that genuinely looks at Asia as an opportunity before it's way too long to do so. And I think that you'd find European brands thinking about international opportunity, including Asia and other places, much sooner in the development stage.
0: Got it. Got it. So more thinking about how it's different in terms of how brands think about expansion,
1: mostly. That's absolutely right, yeah. That's right.
0: I know we're obviously very, very early, but has Brexit at all changed the way you invest or look at companies? Not
1: really. I mean the you know, there's more friction to trade within Europe, from Europe to the UK and from the UK to Europe. And there certainly is friction in terms of getting talent into the UK, whereas previously any European person could just settle in the UK. That's now harder to do. Um, but it hasn't really dramatically affected how we're looking at investments. I mean the truth is that you know, two thirds of our investments are in the US and you know, one third are in Europe anyway, and Europe itself hasn't really struggled that much. So there hasn't been a major impact yet. Unquestionably, it was one gigantic own goal. But then again, sometimes history needs to go through its own own goals before it learns the better way. When
0: do you think it makes sense for DMVBs to hit the shelves and go into retail? I mean, I know that now in the States, I know like Walmart and, and Target are increasingly becoming more aggressive with rolling the dice with, with some of these challenger brands and, and putting them on the shelves. But what's maybe some of your advice for DNVBs when they should actually go into retail?
1: So this is a question I get asked a lot, and it is a fascinating topic that, of course, defies a simple, you know, set answer. So I think, firstly, it depends on the category that you're in. If you're doing ice creams, chances are that you know <laughs> you're going to have to go into retail shelf, just because the supply chain of doing ice cream D to C is, you know, a little bit more challenging. I mean, I'm being flippant here, but there are definitely certain categories that lend themselves to e-commerce more readily and D to C more readily than others. That aside, though. Um, usually, our advice to brands is to stay away from physical retail shelves for as long as they can. For a couple of reasons. First is, all physical retailers are feeling the pinch and are feeling under threat from digital, and they're all trying to find ways of differentiating themselves. And you're absolutely right that, Walmart and Target and Sephora and all of those will very happily take brands that are completely immature, aren't actually set up to support retail, don't know how to manage and support a retail shelf and stick them on with, you know, an end cap to launch with and then see how it goes. And before you know it, six months later, they've been delisted because it hasn't worked and it's completely killed the business. I can't tell you how many brands I've come across who came knocking on our door and said, you know, we're about to be rolled out into 4,000 Walmarts or, you know, a thousand targets, whatever else it is, is going to transform my brand and company. And it doesn't do it. And the reason why is that the skills required to succeed in a physical retail shelf are completely different from those required to, to succeed D 2 C. Including something as basic as the design of your packaging for a physical retail shelf needs to be completely different from the design of your packaging for a digital shelf. You know, the way that you can use a whole web page to tell your story about how your supply chain is clean and how your ingredients are natural, you've got no space to do so with a single facing standing forlorn and tired on the bottom shelf at Walmart when the incumbents have got, you know, the eye-level shelves one, two, and three right above you, and probably are going to be significantly cheaper than you as well. So going into physical retail too early tends to have a couple of fairly devastating consequences for young consumer goods brands. One of them is that it is a massive distraction for a skill set that many of them don't have. Physical retail management, retail activation, trade promotion, others are skills that have nothing to do with how you would buy advertising on Facebook or you know optimize your Instagram positioning. And many make the mistake of thinking that they can just wing it when they really can't second thing is that you know, the capital required in you know, funding end caps and physical inventory and all of that can sap what is a very you know thin and stretched balance sheet to begin with. And you know, the truth is, and here's the most important bit, is that you probably didn't get it right. You didn't get your packaging quite right, you didn't get your pricing quite right, you didn't get your messaging quite right. When you're on a physical retail shop, you are locked in for probably a year before you can make any changes. You don't have control over your pricing can't just change the formulation whereas in digital you can do that at the drop of a hat if you want to change your packaging you can do so today you want to change your pricing you can do so by the end of this podcast and that agility is a necessary component of fine tuning your proposition before you get it right so we use you know typically say wait until you're at least 50 million in revenue in the US before you start going to physical retail now it depends on your category but you should be well on your way to having a very well established digital brand before you start going multi-channel. Eventually, it makes sense to do, but don't do it too early. And just imagine how incredibly proudly you can stand on the virtual shelf. You can take over the entire internet with the purity of your story, and you're accountable only to your own conscience. When you're on a retail shelf next to P&G's products and Unilever's and General Mills's and whatever, everybody knows those brands. Everybody knows what they stand for. You're just an apology at the bottom shelf shouting for attention. And how are you going to tell your story about your you know, uh, true origin of your ingredients and your founder's story and about how you treat your employees well and about how there's no nasty ingredients? How are you going to do that on a, on a facing for a packaging that's maybe a couple of inches wide and a couple of inches tall? How are you going to tell that complex story that justifies your existence? How do you do that? It's extremely tough to do. You don't build brands on physical retail shelves.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. Well, I mean, it's not physical retail shelves, of course. It's more like maybe the virtual retail shelf. But wanted to also kind of hear your perspective about Amazon. And if a brand is most of their sales, for example, online is from Amazon, is that attractive to you to invest in or or not so much?
1: I think a lot of people misunderstand Amazon. Like it or not, Amazon is as powerful as Google. In fact, when it comes to e-commerce, Amazon is more powerful than Google because more than 50%, let that sink in, more than 50% of all e-commerce transactions online begin in Amazon rather than in Google. People searching for a product search in Amazon. They don't just search in Google. That means that if you're not on Amazon with your brand, it's the equivalent to hiding your website from the Google search engine. That's how important this is. So every brand has to have an Amazon strategy. That doesn't mean that you sell your entire product range on Amazon. That doesn't mean that you, you know, price lower on Amazon than on your own. No, but you need to really think about how you do it, including you know, if you're building a brand that's successful outside of Amazon. If you're not occupying your space on Amazon, try typing your brand's name into Amazon. You're going to find that you've got squatters that are advertising against your brand name or you know, gray market reselling your products already, and you've got no control over that. So you have to have an Amazon strategy. You know, we spend a lot of time with our brands thinking through how do you get Amazon right? But what you can't do is ignore it. Certainly not.
0: Interesting, interesting. I had on one investor that said, if you do ignore Amazon, you have to have a very good reason not to.
1: Including looking for reassurance. I mean, we see many, many instances because we do that consumer research where people might discover a brand D2C, might discover it through, you know, a compelling post on Instagram or, you know, a great story being told or hearing it through word of mouth but it's a new product in a category that's you know a high risk category they will search for the brand on amazon to check that it's genuine if they find it on amazon then they might go and buy it dtc anyway but if you're not on amazon it's like okay so hang on so let me get this straight you know this is a brand that i'm trying to buy for skincare and it's a really important product and it doesn't exist on amazon does it mean that it's fake you know can i trust it so that's the extent of the power that amazon has so you need to have a solution there. you need to have an answer Yeah,
0: I think certainly for consumer trust, I also kind of think, too, I mean, just thinking about my own behavior, if I discover a brand that's on DTC, I actually hope they're on Amazon because not only does it validate the brand, but also if it's Amazon Prime and free shipping, I would actually much prefer to purchase it on Amazon knowing that it will come in two days rather than the company website. So you also have that as well.
1: And just the convenience of it. Now, in fairness, I'd say both PayPal and Shopify are doing a good job of getting rid of friction in D2C e-commerce outside of Amazon. Now, the shipping details all entered and credit cards all entered. With PayPal checkout now that most e-commerce retailers are adopting and with Shopify going across the brands, this is becoming frictionless as well, which is great. Definitely wasn't the case a couple of years ago, but it's getting increasingly better and better. By the way, you know, I would say that Shopify is You know, going to be the next Amazon. So I think e-commerce is going to be dominated by Amazon for its own platform, you know, outside of Asia, of course. And then Shopify for everybody outside of Amazon. So, you know, I'm very long on, on Shopify as a platform for exactly that reason. Do you
0: see brands at all graduating from Shopify? Um, I know there's been like a lot of talk about how once you reach like, a certain amount of revenue on Shopify that some brands have actually been going and then going completely custom. Have you seen a lot of that or have you seen more so? I know Shopify now is also looking to go into and, and have done a really good job of going into more of the magento world of being more upmarket. I'd just love to kind of hear your thoughts around that too.
1: The truth is that Shopify is getting better by the day and it's an immensely sophisticated platform already. And I think... You know, if anything, we tend to advise our brands to go standard Shopify rather than custom builds, and that you'll end up with better functionality that way. I think you, you know, it's a very rare case where the Shopify Plus platform isn't sufficient for you. I think you can go a very long way with that. Cool.
0: What are some opportunities and trends that you're currently focused on in
1: CBG? I think it's it's basically the same. I mean the such an extraordinarily exciting time which is that you can pick any CPG category that you want and find fault in it, find fault in it that's the result of decades of, you know, corporate efficiency driving rather than really doing right to the planet and to consumers. And there's the ability to challenge that status quo with better alternatives, you know, time and again and I think you know the opportunities are there everywhere rather than saying there's only a particular one. Yeah, well, there's so many of them. I mean, you know, the vitamins, minerals, and supplements category, which has historically been just full of mumbo-jumbo and, and fake pseudoscience. There's some incredible brands out there. We just invested in Seed, Seed.com, of course, with their pre- and probiotic uh, products that are bringing a level of science and transparency and democratizing access to magnificent new science and products in the supplement space, taking on the incumbents there. You know, uh, Unilever and PNG need to be taken down in the entirety of the home care categories. Uh, you know, there's more to be done on food and better view food and alternatives to the you know, kind of crap that we all tend to eat out there. I mean, I could talk for days. There's so much opportunity out there. These are incredibly exciting times.
0: Do you ever find there's so much noise in the space? How do you actually see what are compelling companies there are?
1: Yeah, I mean, look, we use a set of reasonably sophisticated tools that tell us what consumers are talking about online and what they're excited about and what their sentiment is. And we analyze credit card transactions to understand where real spend goes. And that also allows us to compare across brands, et cetera. So we can pick with a fair degree of sophistication winners from the losers out there. Um, And that's also immensely exciting for entrepreneurs because they know that if we're reaching out to them, which is what we do, we don't wait for them to come to us. If we reach out to them, it means that we've really seen something in them that's special and unique. And I think many entrepreneurs are excited by that
0: um what's what's one thing that you would change about venture capital
1: you know it's one of those things where it's not if i had one wish but my wish would be that i have an infinite number of wishes about things that i could change about venture capital (laughs) so there's not just one thing that's wrong with vc but i think vc i'd say the traditional model of vc is you know in many ways broken way that vc is structured with a fund structure that has a fund horizon and then needs to return the capital and you know the time limit required for exits and the exit multiples that are required and the stacks of preference shares and all that kind of stuff that pit investor against shareholder and management team, all of those are just wrong. And we've gotten rid of all of those in the Craftery. You know, we're not a fund, we're investment companies, so we're permanent capital, so we don't need to return our own capital at any one point in time. So brands can stay with us forever if they want, and unless they've already messed up their capital, we don't take preference shares, we take the same class of shares as the management team have. All of that sort of stuff can be addressed but it means a different model for an investment house rather than a conventional investment fund. Yeah,
0: I was talking with um, Max Needlehofer um, on Friday who um, also, I think, had similar sentiments around how the investment fund, the traditional venture fund, isn't really the best model and, and certainly is broken.
1: And you know, beyond that, You know What's more exciting and wonderful than to think of your investors as being your allies, your mentors, your partners who can help you through times, good and bad, with advice and experience and expertise that is genuinely relevant, who can help you think through how you build a world-class brand and how you scale your operations and how you approach product innovation. And you can only do that if you've done it yourself. So I think the best investors are the ones who were first and foremost operators. That's my view.
0: What's one book that inspired you personally and one book that inspired you professionally?
1: One book that inspired me personally is Max Frisch's book, Homo Faber. Uh, Max Frisch is a Swiss author from the um, you know, post-World War II era. And the book, Homo Faba tells the story of a man of science and rationality, Homo Faba, the man of science from Latin who believes that everything can be calculated and predicted and there's no such thing as serendipity or chance in life. And you know, inevitably, through a series of highly improbable coincidences, which is what life is made of, he ends up experiencing deep personal tragedy, which gets him to reevaluate entirely the role of predictable causal paths in life as opposed to the black swans that actually make up our existence. And it was deeply touching because it means embracing the chaos rather than trying to control it. It means leaning into what life will throw at you and not being scared by it rather than trying to control it and predict it so that touched me deeply in terms of a book that touched me or influenced me professionally i'm going to go way back to a book that shaped the 90s which was in search of excellence you know in those days when america was trying to figure out how it was going to regain competitiveness around the world and it looked to those companies that did it brilliantly you know talked about companies that have now long fallen from grace, like GE or Toyota. And the reason why that book marked me was for two reasons. The first one was the realization that actually, although the book didn't articulate it in that way, but that's the conclusion I drew from it, is that truly great companies aren't great at everything that they do. They're great at one specific thing or two specific things. You know, Amazon is actually a terrible consumer marketing company, but they are terrific at supply chain and logistics they will get you your product in less than 24 hours in europe and you know us is a bit bigger takes 48 hours but they will do so come rain or shine across millions of products and it is hugely impressive you know apple is actually in many ways terrible at innovation, even though everybody thinks Apple is brilliant innovation, they don't do innovation. They let other people invent innovation, and when it's been proven, then they you know, copy it, but they apply it better. They do a better job at stripping away complexity and making beautiful industrial design behind it, making it simple to understand. So, truly great companies are great not because of everything they do, but because of one thing they do that is relevant to their category. It's what we like to call the brand blade, the reason for which you can slice through competition, the permission that you have to compete in the marketplace. And in search of excellence at its own time, tried to find what it is that makes companies great. And whenever I look not only at big corporates now, but challenger brands, I keep on saying to them, what is it that uniquely is your brand blade? What is it that you uniquely have to do better than anybody else out there for you to be here? Not now, not today, but in 10 years' time. And what is it, the one thing that you have to invest in, more than all other things, to really be razor sharp at? So there you go. Two things, two books that marked me.
0: I love your explanations for both of those. And I'm also really excited because no one yet on this show has brought up either of these books. Ernesto, you're very original.
1: You can't possibly be a, you know, a challenger a contrarian and then say the same thing everybody else says, right? <laughs>
0: exactly. Mr. Original over here. That's great. What's the best piece of advice that you've received?
1: Eleanor Roosevelt was, of course, a woman well ahead of her time. And I'm not that old as I'm going to say that I got that advice from her. No, that would be wrong. But um, she was a woman well ahead of her time. She was a lesbian. She was, you know, a, a libertarian. She progressed, you know, the agenda for, you know, equality and rights in the United States decades before anybody else thought it was possible. And she has many quotes that are attributed to her. One of which, it may be right, may be wrong, but it's a brilliant quote, is to say, you know, I would worry more about what people think about me if I knew that they think about me at all. And this is this fundamental disconnect that all of us live with which is that we're the protagonists in our own story and we think that the rest of the world really cares how well or badly we do and we're terrified of taking risks because we think if we fall the consequences will be catastrophic we will fall from grace nobody will ever hire us again people will laugh at us you know the shame that will fall upon us from failing is unacceptable and we hold back the truth is the rest of the world couldn't care less in fact, if anything, the world is going to be excited about the fact that you took a risk and that you picked yourself up, you dusted yourself off and you tried again and again until you succeeded. So, Eleanor's words ring true in my mind in the sense of don't worry about what others are going to say or think. Be true to yourself because the consequences of you failing at what you're trying to do are going to be far less than what you feel they might be.
0: I love that. I love that quote. And I really love your explanation, also how you think of it. And certainly, I mean, as someone that who actually started a lot of businesses and actually took a lot of risk, that's really awesome. Ernesto, this has been so much fun. Thank you again for your time.
1: It's been the highlight of my day. Thank you for
0: having me. And there you have it. It was wonderful chatting to Ernesto. You can catch him on Twitter at Ernesto Schmidt. I'd love it if you'd write a review on the Apple Podcasts. You're also welcome to follow me, your host, Mike, on Twitter at MikeGelb, and also follow for episode announcements at ConsumerVC. Thanks for listening, everyone.